This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jessica Near McDonald, an attorney focused on intellectual property rights and the head of global trademark services at Midjourney. The rise of NFTs and AI-generated artwork has opened up all sorts of interesting questions about IP and ownership. Jess is my go-to knowledge base for this topic. In this episode, Jess takes us through the nuances of IP law and how it might apply in Web3. We discuss major NFT lawsuits like Yuga Labs, Hermes, and Nike, and the precedent they set in this transition from physical to digital property rights. Finally, we talk about AI art and its opportunities and unique challenges. Please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Beer. Jess, I think that when I talk to people about Web3 and NFTs, smart contracts, especially you know two years ago, you'd be in a conversation, inevitably someone's a lawyer, or for some reason, many people in my life are lawyers, and they would start asking questions about precedent. So you have this picture of a born ape. Do you actually own it? What could you do with it? And I've always been fascinated in this idea of intellectual property in general, but specifically with Web3, NFTs, and smart contracts. And so I think a real great place to start is you've become my go-to knowledge base on this subject matter. How has your transition from maybe the traditional world to the digital world changed how you think about IP and protections? I feel very lucky in that I've been practicing intellectual property law for, I think I'm at around seven or eight years now. And I've always worked with people that, whether it be creatives or entrepreneurs looking to push boundaries, and that's one of the things that attracts me to intellectual property law. So I feel like in that sense, this was just a new iteration of that. But I really like that it brought together so I've represented artists or people in fashion, sports, these different areas. And then there was always tech, which was more focused on the software side. So NFTs really brought all this together, which makes me so happy. It was kind of a creative way for people from all different industries to come together and find new ways to work with this technology. I like the point you made about boundaries, because it always feels like when this comes up, someone's usually defensively or positioning themselves of that's mine. So like, there's lots of cases we're going to go through today. I don't know where we want to start, but one that I think people will be more familiar with is the Hermes Birkin bag, that it's a famous bag by a famous manufacturer. And I believe someone created a digital version of it, but never got their express permission to do it. And it led to a lawsuit. Is that roughly what happened? Yes. So Mason Rothschild is the defendant there. It's a pseudonym for him, and he is an artist. 
he created these digital images of the famous Hermes bag, but made them free and sold these through NFTs. So this was in late 2021, which was really the peak of NFTs. It was really a time where people were still trying to figure out what their maybe metaverse strategy was and metaverse being whether or not that involved crypto or not. So Hermes filed a trademark lawsuit against Rothschild and said, you called this collection Meta Birkins. You also use this in a domain name, use social media handles, et cetera, using Meta Birkins. And that's trademark infringement. That's diluting our famous brand and cyber squatting with the domain name part. And we got our first NFT trademark trial out of it. Interestingly enough, Rothschild's primary argument, well, first they said, I was not using it as a trademark. So usually the collection of a piece of art the title of that doesn't function as a source identifier or a trademark. So that was one of their arguments. Another argument was that this is protected under the First Amendment. So I have the ability to the extent I'm using this as a trademark, I'm using it in, as a way that is protecting my artistic expression and therefore I'm not infringing on anyone's trademark. And did we get any outcome there or is that still ongoing? We did. So there was a trial. In New York, the jury found in favor of Hermes and said that First Amendment protection did not apply. But also a big takeaway that I found was that digital artworks via NFTs themselves can function as expressive works. So there were some earlier orders from the court that suggest that there's some expressiveness that can happen there. But in this specific case, the jury found that that was not at play here. This is a trademark infringement that occurred. There was cyber squatting that occurred and there were damages around $133,000. Okay. I'm not a lawyer and definitely don't understand trademark. I remember when Tom Sachs issued these rockets and it was so cool. We got these rocket things and you could build these rockets in parts and every rocket part was like McDonald's or Chanel or Tiffany's or Trojan condoms. It was really funny. They were clearly the brands. And I remember thinking like, is this legal? And this is lack of having any art or something. And then I remember just starting to be like, well, isn't there that Campbell soup? It's a Warhol or something. People have done this before. So I was like, well, what can you or can't you do? So if you're an artist, apparently you can use a brand, but where does the line drawn between Hermes Birkenbag can't do that, but that Tom Sachs was allowed to have rockets with brands on them? That's a very difficult line to draw. First, because we are talking about trademarks, we're talking about source identifiers. In the case of Meta Birkins, we're talking about Birkins versus Meta Birkins. I should also add that Birkins had not had any kind of virtual goods offering under their brand. So this was basically relying on their rights from selling the physical bags. It wasn't a direct comparison with something in the virtual world. So I think that that was a very big concern. And it still is for when we really saw this giant rush of trademark applications happening, especially in 2021, 2022, related to NFTs specifically. A lot of big brands just didn't know, even if we don't have a plan, I think there were some maybe some defensive filings where people were trying to get ahead of that. 
And here, it was nice, I suppose, from a brand perspective to know, okay, the trademark rights that I had acquired from in a physical sense had also applied to those virtual goods. So just to (laughs) go back, really focusing on the trademark aspect and not copyright, which refers more to the expression in a fixed, tangible (laughs) piece of work. So that is a different type of right under intellectual property law. It is not related to the source identifying property. It attaches automatically. So you own the copyright right away. And that's generally where we get into what they have heard fair use when you when it relates to Andy Warhol and Tom Sachs. There's a lot of talk around fair use and being able to use the work of others in there. So in that sense, it's somewhat similar to this trademark fair use. <laughs> but the trademark aspect is really just referring to the use of a brand. Let me just click down so I understand. Give me an example of a trademark and then give me an example of a copyright. You can actually have something have both. <laughs> so a logo, for example, <laughs> a logo can have source identifying properties, but also have enough creativity to form a copyright associated with that. In the Hermes example, I guess what I'm trying to understand is in the Birkin bag, they were claiming we have a trademark of our bag in the real world and you're using it in the digital world without our permission. The word. Oh, the word. All right. So it's more the word than the, the image or the likeness. Birkin versus Meta Birkin. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. That makes sense to me now. The Tom Sachs example I'm giving, they're using the logos and the word. Like it says Chanel and it had the C's on it. In that case, how is that fair use for like an artist to do something like that? There is a test in which we can analyze brand use in artistic works. And it's called the Rogers test. It came from a case out of New York. And we are trying (laughs) to figure out how that may apply. I mean, we're still very much trying to define those boundaries. Just in short, the Rogers test is really referring to first, is it an artistic piece? So as an example, in the Hermes case, they were saying that it can qualify under this test because it's possible that the digital image via an NFT can be an artistic work. And that's in contrast to, I know we haven't talked about the Yuga Labs case yet, but in another big NFT trademark case, there was found no artistic expression there given the conduct by the defendants saying that it was purely commercial. There was no artistic expression. The Rogers test is really trying to define those boundaries and protecting free speech under the First Amendment and trying to figure out when those expressive words might be explicitly misleading as to the source or if there's no artistic relevance, well, then that's a case of infringement. It's so fact specific (laughs) that it's really hard to say definitely this would apply, definitely that would apply. And we actually have a case in front of the Supreme Court. So it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court involving Jack Daniels and a dog toy that was claiming to be a parody of a Jack Daniels bottle and saying that that was an artistic expression. That was a parody that falls squarely within the First Amendment. And Jack Daniels disagreed. And so now it's up to the Supreme Court to 
maybe help us set some boundaries and when that test applies. Super interesting. To close up on the Hermes bag, had he called them meta bags and then used Gucci, Hermes, Louis Vuitton as inspiration as his artwork, he might have been fine. But the minute he called them meta Birkins and used their branding with their bags, it became, at least in this case, with the facts to the court where you clearly step past the boundary of copying what they have. Yeah, I think that's right. It was really very much focused on the trademark theories involving Meta Birkins versus Birkins. There was even some discussion earlier in the case about whether the trade dress applied. So packaging, like if I described a blue box with jewelry in it, you might think that might be Tiffany's. That refers to trade dress. And arguably, there's trade dress in the Birkins bag, given its distinctiveness. But they backed off from that argument, and it seemed to be much more focused on the name itself. All right, let's move to the case that a lot of people were following, which is the Yuga Rider Rips case. You want to give a background on what happened? I started going into it a little earlier. Really interesting case. Yuga Labs is the plaintiff there, and they own trademarks in Basie or BAYC, Board Ape Yacht Club, Board Ape. They have an Ape Skull logo, and they are a major NFT collection. They sell NFTs <laughs> that have these ape images. You have one. What does your ape look like? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it has a striped shirt. Striped shirt, spinner hat with the ape coin eyeballs. Ah, okay. The spinner hat. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, there's 10,000 of these images. So it's amazing. So a lot of them have different characteristics. And the defendants were arguing that certain characteristics, the ape school logo itself, had some references to racist or alt-right imagery. But... What they did was they created another collection of NFTs with the exact same images. And when I say with the exact same images, the NFT itself pointed to the exact Yuga Lab Board API Club image collection. So they were the same exact images that were being pointed to. And the defendants was initially, they were selling it through a website that had a disclaimer called it R-R-B-A-Y-C. And the disclaimers talked about this being a criticism of Yuga Labs and the Board Ape Yacht Club collection. But ultimately, it really went beyond that page because it was also being listed on NFT marketplaces such as Foundation, the actual token tracker, which you can look at to look at more details on the blockchain and try to get an idea of the source. The token tracker itself for the Rider Rips collection said Board Ape Yacht Club. So they were very vocal on social media about the Board Ape Yacht Club and this collection. And it was very interesting from an IP perspective because we're just waiting. What is Labs going to do? What theories are they going to bring, if any? Are they going to take action here? And they didn't bringing an action related to defamation. So to say like, you're, you know, this is false information that, that you're putting out there. Um, more importantly to me, <laughs> they didn't bring a copyright claim. 
And it's really interesting because these images, like we were saying, there's 10,000 of them. And that's primarily because they were generated. So the idea of generative art and copyright protection is still a little unsettled. So to what extent was a human involved in the creative aspect of making these art pieces? Instead, the case very much focused on the trademark aspect. So the fact that the defendants used RRBAYC, the fact that, for example, the foundation page said Board Ape Yacht Club and used the exact skull logo of Yuga Labs, the fact that the token tracker said Board Ape Yacht Club, things like that. So it was very, I think, intentionally focused on these trademark claims. In this case, and I don't really care about the motivations, it felt like the defendant went ridiculous beyond those boundaries. So in a case where if you couldn't win a case like this, it's hard to think of a case you would win. They literally copied exactly what they did. I think there was a big piece that came out recently in the order for summary judgment on the terms and conditions of the collection itself. So even just putting aside the defendant's conduct, there has been some questions about what rights, if any, do holders have that purchase into this collection. Yuga Labs did something really interesting here in that they distributed commercial rights to their holders. So if you bought an NFT in their project, the idea is that you have a license or permission to use that image associated with the NFT for commercial use. And many have taken advantage of it. It's been really interesting to see restaurants and water product, all different types of products and services being offered in connection with that image. It's really been very interesting to see the creativity that has come from that and a different way of doing licensing, but it's come with some risks. And the defendants tried to poke some holes in that. So those licensing rights, did they refer to trademarks? So did they refer to the Board Ape Yacht Club name, the Ape School logo, etc. The court just really said, here's what the terms and conditions says. This is focused on copyright. This is a license. They're giving permission for others to use. It's not an assignment which gives over all of the associated copyrights. So that was a nice, I think, clarification because it was a new way of doing things. And the language in the terms and conditions has been criticized. So that was nice to see. But also, it gave us more to think about and how we classify these types of assets under trademark law. So trademarks aren't just a word by itself, right? The company is really building through goodwill, building the brand and what we recognize. The word Google doesn't mean much to us. The company built Google to what it is today. Now we hear the word and we automatically associate it with that brand, maybe a certain level of quality, et cetera. So that in connection with search engine services, for example, is mainly what we're thinking about. But how do you work that around with NFTs? Because how is this piece of code really (laughs) a good? Is it a digital good? The trademark office and really an international body that sets forth these categories use NFTs as something that they look at the actual good, like downloadable image that's being sold, and then say that that's being authenticated by NFTs. 
or some other form of media, or it could be a physical good, et cetera. But the key being NFTs are usually fitting in there because it's being authenticated. It's the authenticating part. But there was some really great language in this decision and echoing also from the Hermes decision that's saying, look, it's not just a digital deed. It's more. It's suggesting that it's really a digital good in and of itself, which is different than, for example, how the trademark office is currently treating that. And the example, because I know that people I respect at Galaxy wrote a piece about the terms of service and that this wouldn't pass. The points you were making about some of the critiques of this IP transfer, because early on, it was very, and still is, an experimental space. And so this idea was, here you could have one of these 10,000 really fun images, but we're giving you the rights, you own this. And so the first time this kind of came up was, Let's say someone else, this whole joke of like, look, I can right click, save your thing. And you can, it's a picture just like any other picture online. However, is it fair to say if someone right clicked, save my board ape, and then created a coffee brand with the board ape that I can prove I own on it, could I sue them? And if I was going to sue them, what would I sue them under? Some of the terminology you were just using referring to ownership, it's what does it mean to own an NFT? You own the NFT, but do you own, do you have exclusive rights to use that image in whatever way you wish? And that's really referring to the copyright. So you're really being given permission and Yuga Labs is the owner of the copyright. So as somebody who's been given permission to use that image, that does not necessarily mean that you can actually enforce that copyright against somebody else. There's probably a good presumption that this is a non-exclusive license that you have. We haven't quite seen that play out. (laughs) And that's one of those things that with the experimenting, we're trying to get a good feel for what we're going to see. Like that's a big conflict that could occur. And would the owner be willing to help you with trying to enforce these rights? There's a lot of questions there. So the short answer of would you be able to do anything and probably under copyright? No. That's interesting. You also need a copyright registration, I should say. (laughs) Sorry, another important note. You need a copyright registration to actually bring a lawsuit for copyright infringement. And that actually played into this case, the Yuga Labs versus Ryder Rips case, because Ryder Rips was claiming in one of its counterclaims that it related to copyright and trying to poke holes at whether or not Yuga Labs even owned any copyrights. So that's another separate issue with the question that you brought up is, is there even copyright (laughs) to give out? Um, And that would, I think, cause a lot of people to be a bit upset based on some of the prices that are associated with these NFT purchases. But in short, Yuga Labs does not have any copyright registrations. So they were saying we can't even bring a copyright infringement case against you at this time because we don't currently have copyright registrations. Oh, interesting. When they did this, that alone was an experiment for IP people where even though there was a few NFTs, there was things that have been issued in the past and they're all written that the original owners retained the rights and you were just buying the assets and they weren't giving them out. And then this whole idea kicked off this dream state of like, oh, what are people gonna do? And whether they did or not, I think that was cool. 
And then we had this version of CCO where apparently like anyone can use the rights. And so I guess when people are thinking about NFTs for membership communities or NFTs as assets that they might want to play with, what are the pros and cons of the three different methods that a project could choose? And are there other methods beyond the ones I just listed? Yeah, definitely. So you brought up CC0, which refers to a form of Creative Commons licensing. There is actually several licenses by international nonprofit called Creative Commons that has traditionally been used outside of the NFT space and can really help owners of copyright try to give different permissions, like saying, I have no problem if you use this for commercially, just please give me attribution. There's different versions of licenses. And the CC0 aspect just fast forwards a term of copyright. So your copyright expires. It's usually the life of the author plus 70 years, and there's some other exceptions there, but it does expire and it goes into the public domain. So this just fast forwards the process into the public domain with no take backs. So if you declare a work that you're relinquishing your copyright for a certain work, the theory at least is that you can't quite claw that back. So there are a number of NFT collections, I would say definitely usually more meme focused, which I find pretty cool, (laughs) that have decided to release their artwork into the public domain. So really anyone, not just the NFT holder, can do anything with those images. So that creates definitely a different scenario from the earlier hypothetical you were posing. But you might be a bit more hesitant, for example, to build a brand around something like that, for example. So there's definitely some pros and cons associated with that. While I personally really like the meme culture, I belong to some CC0 projects. I think it's a time and place kind of thing, but I get excited that people are at least considering it and might find a good use for it because a lot of people really like that. You don't need permission to use it. You could just use it without and for any kind of purpose for whatever you want to use it for. Some other projects are taking another view in retaining the copyright and not giving any kind of licensing. You can own the NFT, but you don't have any rights to the copyright that resides exclusively with the artist or the project holder. So you can probably only really use it for personal use, maybe as a profile picture, or maybe you put it up on your, in your home. <laughs> there might be some other use cases there, but not commercially, not the face of a food truck that you're starting or not something that you should put on a bunch of shirts and sell to a lot of different people. We're seeing some experimentation in between that. So yes, you can use it commercially, go for it. If you own the NFT, you can use it commercially. But once you hit about $100,000, come talk to me because we need to figure out your license. That might be difficult to manage. (laughs) Maybe perhaps restraining also for whoever might be using that image. It just very much depends on how they're using that commercially. But it does have a nice advantage for the copyright holder, which in this case would be probably the project, to have some influence or maybe help that brand, that owner that's done something interesting in a commercial way with that asset and might also still be maintaining that control. An example, not in the NFT space, 
but does involve a character that's pretty popular, Pepe the Frog. The artist and copyright owner had enforced Pepe the Frog against that image being used in a homophobic children's book or something to that extent. I don't recall the exact facts, but because the copyright was maintained, the owner of that copyright was able to stop subsequent people that were trying to use those images in ways that the owner just didn't agree with. That's a whole fascinating case, the Pepe the Frog being like my favorite and many favorite memes on the internet. So Matt Fury, the artist, I love his work. Obviously, there are times where that gets memed. Chex did it or some other group takes Pepe the Frog and turns it into something. Is it just that and this just shows my lack of understanding on IP that you're just kind of waiting for the owner to attack. It's an offensive play that if Matt is happy with what you're doing and he sees your art and he likes it, that it's okay. There's no like natural hop to do this. But then if you do something, what happened and Matt gets upset, he has every right to come in and stop you. That's generally right. There's some defenses that may be available. Like you took too long to bring a suit against me or I use this in this constitutes fair use, which we were referring to earlier. There's another Supreme Court case related to copyright and fair use for a famous photographer and this image of prints that Warhol had made silk prints of. And he had previously obtained licenses, but not for this specific image. And so this case actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And again, we're waiting to hear what possibly could help define the boundaries of fair use, because it is definitely a risk similar to what we were talking about. And for artists, not even just artists, just anything, this could involve video games, for example. I remember there was a case involving Activision, where Activision was accused of using a monkey patch in one of their games, and they were successful in this Rogers defense. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. So there's definitely risk and a lot of the power resides in the copyright owner. You mentioned that CCO is a fast forwarding of when you die plus 70 years. Is it true? Or I read something like Mickey Mouse was coming up or something. And so like Disney technically are happy with Winnie the Pooh and someone made a ridiculous horror movie. So when that happens, anyone can do anything. Is there any putting the genie back in the bottle after the 70 years? There is some caution to be exercised there because you have to really be sure on what exactly has been released in the public domain because the author may have taken that and built upon it. And so certain aspects, the, for example, Winnie the Pooh story that we know and love that may have grown up on that are actually still protected under copyright. There's definitely some caution there. And then also... I really feel like trademarks, a different area of intellectual property, really plays an important role. And I think that's why we're starting to see older Mickeys being used now in maybe the beginning of the films or in different places. I think what that is, is maybe there's like a, a newer version of it. So maybe there's some claim there under copyright, but also under trademarks that can last forever. As long as you're using it in commerce, so you're using that in connection with something, you can own it forever. There's other creative ways you can still try to protect your intellectual property, even though the copyright's entered into the public domain. But you can also think of how we got here. And that is a constitutional principle 
was put in <laughs> by our founding fathers because they found that useful arts along with patents, which we haven't talked about, but are so important that we need to encourage it. And how we encourage it is by exclusivity and Congress go make laws about it. I feel that just the internet in general has really challenged that with the ability to proliferate things just so much easier. There's probably some updating needed. (laughs) All right. So I'm not going to go build my own Mickey Mouse empire anytime soon. Let's move to defense and patents. So people ask about utility and use cases and what's working, what's not working. I think maybe with an investment mind about stuff, when I see multi-billion dollar companies suing, even if it's defensive, that's a hint to me of like, there's value there. And one of the cases that caught my attention was something you wrote about, which was Nike and StockX. And I think StockX was trying to use an idea of authentication on chain, which I think is a really fascinating idea. What happened in that case that got Nike's attention? Because if Nike is suing you, my thought is you're onto something. First, it's important to know what StockX does. So they sell used products. <laughs> so for example, it's interesting because taking aside the digital aspect, they sell collectibles and maybe certain Nike shoes in the real world. And they tried to bring that use case to the blockchain and Nike, the way that they were doing it, Nike was saying that StockX, you're using the Nike trademarks, you're intentionally deceiving consumers to believe that Nike is approving of this activity and we're not. And It ended up that Nike also did some experimenting through StockX program, and they're asserting that some of the Nikes that they were selling were actually knockoffs. So that brings it under counterfeit, which is another type of trademark-related claim. But I agree in that I'm definitely really interested in how we're going to be able to track provenance of physical goods. I think that this can have some really important implications. The case is still pending. We don't have much to go off of from a court decision one way or another, but definitely trying to figure out what's authentic and what's not authentic, using the blockchain to support that. Just because Nike originally sold the shoe, does that mean that another party can't sell a Nike shoe through the blockchain? That's not necessarily the case at hand, but it's definitely really something interesting to think about. Yes. I mean, I think about secondary markets in general of whether it was eBay or StockX being a specialty retailer that had it. It was interesting that the pictures of Nikes are showing you Nikes. It's just like you're buying it, but it's a secondary market where they become typically traded for higher prices and people are giving them immense value. It's interesting that going to the digital was kind of the trigger mechanism of maybe we're not as okay with this as once previously believed. Yeah. And Nike is extremely active in the Web3 space. So I think there's some questions from a competitive side as well is what kind of opportunities might be taken away if somebody's going to market first. It definitely raises a lot of questions about the first sale doctrine. So the idea of once you have one sale, it's gone, the ability to collect resale royalties. These are all really interesting questions that are coming from NFTs primarily. I promised myself I would never say these two words together, but I'm going to break the rule of saying crypto and AI in the same sentence because I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but you are now the head of global trademark services for Midjourney, and you're also working at artificial intelligence. I do find the same thing, just really cool case law that's going to be written about artists. I've seen, for some people who haven't seen them on social media, they're taking an artist's voice, they're putting that in a model, then they're writing new lyrics, and you're hearing a song that the artist never produced, but sounded like it. I think it's wicked cool, but I can also understand it for an artist why you're not thrilled with it. And again, this is another thing where when a trillion dollar industry starts to get upset and starts giving artists ideas of what to put in contracts to say, you can or can't do this. Where are we in kind of the AI IP infringement type of <laughs> story? That actually reminds me, not necessarily the AI aspect, but it reminds me of Miramax lawsuit against Quentin Tarantino when he announced an NFT project. I wonder if that was fall of 2022. Oh, I was there. I got to meet with Quentin Tarantino because of Mike Novogratz, and it was one of the wildest days of my life. <laughs> oh, wait, 2021. Yeah, it was fall of 2021. It was during NFT NYC. They were going to do the announcement. He had a really cool story. He has every page of Pulp Fiction, and he had this person to work for him type it up, and then he would like write handwritten notes. And he still had the binder on his desk, and it was just sitting there. And he was like, wouldn't it be amazing if I could take high-res visual images of each page and every page would be an NFT? So if you're a crazy fan and for like the most popular scenes, imagine you could buy that from Quentin Tarantino. And I thought this idea was so cool. Wicked cool. <laughs> Until then, like so cool. Miramax sued him and stopped all the fun. <laughs> yeah. This was really interesting because it really related to a contract from the 1990s that talked about who's going to own what rights. Tarantino did reserve certain rights associated with his contracts with Miramax. And gosh, I forget the exact language in there, but there was the possibility that maybe, <laughs> maybe this included the ability to take these pages and make NFTs and then sell that to NFTs, have that connection with fans. I mean, super, super interesting. But that ultimately settled and was confidential. So we don't really know what happened. But it does help us think about, well, what should we be putting into our contracts now to think about what's going to happen in the future, being careful about the type of rights that you're giving up and when. There are a lot of artists that do give certain rights. This, I think, more from a right of publicity angle. So it's like a cousin of intellectual property, but every state has their own laws on this. So it's a bit of patchwork here in the US, but that still might refer to your name, image, likeness, voice. So that to me really, I think, rings some alarm that we've been seeing a bunch of, especially in the music space, we're seeing this conversation around AI, mimicking someone else's voice and producing new works. So it's kind of wild right now. And I'm trying to think, so there might be, for example, in certain contracts that give permissions to record labels, to whoever, just third parties to use somebody's voice image or whatever. But it's usually in connection with something maybe to help with marketing and promoting an album, if it's a music sense or whatever that may be. 
But I think it's really good <laughs> to be thinking about staying on top of these issues and incorporating that into how contracts are being written to try to anticipate <laughs> some really crazy future uses. I mean, deep fakes are not quite new, but I think with just the technology getting so good that, again, it goes back to those earlier themes we were talking about of authentication and how we trust things. Super interesting. I think the deep fakes, the videos, those freak people out. The music is this newest one we've seen where people are releasing songs from artists that just don't even know they're happening and people are being taken by them and think they're fascinating and fun and a really new, interesting form of art. When it comes to generation of pictures or artworks, I don't even know where to begin with this of a computer taking in everything in the MoMA and then producing something. And then do the artists that were the seed of that deserve any rights or acknowledgement? Where do you even begin when thinking about these new complex models? This is a tough question because there's a lot of high emotions around this. The Copyright Office actually just held a listening session where they had artists and attorneys, technologists speaking about these current issues and what they're seeing. And just also, it goes back to, I think, the ethics of it as well. There's a couple of lawsuits going on right now, but one of them is really trying to challenge how the source data being trained on. So there are a lot of issues <laughs> there in the space. We haven't had any decisions to know one way or the other what the courts are going to say. But I think it's still very interesting to think about that from an ethical perspective, for sure. And I would say that, especially with music and voices that you were mentioning, there are different uses as well, not just from this use of, hey, I want to take somebody else's voice without their permission and use it in a certain way. Because I think that just in general, people are always going to try to abuse the technology no matter what. But I also think it's neat to talk about other aspects of that as well. Digital twins. I think I saw Jack Nicholas doing a project where he has an AI. I don't have the exact details, but I want to say he recorded his voice and it can be used to help coach golf. Do you want a golf lesson with Jack Nicholas? It's kind of like, the idea that if you can be in multiple places at once, <laughs> I think that's super interesting. For a few years now, we've also seen it from maybe helping us preserve memories of loved ones. It's just amazing what's happening with the technology. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but certainly a lot of these generators that are making it much easier easier, more accessible to the public. It's now we're really trying to struggle with some of the ethical considerations involved there. Well, I'm glad you're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Just we end these podcasts with kind of the same question, but I guess what are, and it might be stuff that you're working on or excited to follow up for cases over the next six months, you know, usually ask people what they're looking to build or invest in, but maybe you're looking to see what's resolved or people use with this IP over the next six months and then over the next six years. I'll start with the years. Over the next six years, I want to see what's going to be the new norm in licensing and to what extent 
blockchain technology might play in helping us be able to track chain of title. So as assets move from one party to another, or as permissions are given, to what extent, it doesn't necessarily need to be via public blockchain, but to what extent we might be able to easier track chain of title there. I think that's super interesting. And just to see, I think there's going to be a new norm. I just am convinced (laughs) that there has to be. Over the next six months, those two Supreme Court cases that I was mentioning involving fair use on the copyright side and the Rogers tests on the trademark side, I would love to see if we're going to get an opinion from the Supreme Court. I think that's going to really help shape what artists or what creative works and generally to what extent you might be able to use another person's work or another person's trademark with some guidance, hopefully, (laughs) on what might be considered acceptable or not. So I feel like I'm hopeful and optimistic that within the six months, we might have some guidance there. Well, you can tell, and I hope you keep up all the threads on keeping us up to date, because I think we all learn a lot with you sharing the cutting edge of what's happening in the court system relating to all of this. So thank you, Jess. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 